to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode 9. And this is our spoiler-filled episode. We have a special guest today. Uh, I am your host, Jan Prater, and I'm joined by Patrick. But our special guest is Peter Haight. And Peter co-founded uh, Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast with me. And Peter is probably a bigger Blade Runner fan than he is an Alien fan. So thanks for being on, Peter. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. So yeah, let's get some spoilers going, yeah. bitches. So this is yes. a spoiler-free, or <laughs> not spoiler-free. This is a spoiler-heavy episode. Spoiler-filled. Spoiler-filled yeah. episode. This is, uh, this is the whole milk episode. Totally. Right. Right. Uh, for Blade Runner 2049, I've seen the film twice. Uh, I think Peter, you've seen the film twice. Maybe I'm not sure. Um, yes, I saw the double feature last evening, and then I went to see it this afternoon with my fiance. Nice, nice. And uh, Patrick's only seen it once. <laughs> I've only seen it once. To be fair, I, I just got back from Europe last night, but I saw it once. But I'm seeing it three times more this week. I have plans yeah. to see it, so, so I'm gonna try awesome. to hit that. I'm gonna hit that like ten mark, and then I think I'm gonna wait for, for the rest of. Well, who knows? I'm fucking addicted to it already. This yeah. movie is so oh, amazing. Man. Yeah. It it's is, like it I, I, I could watch it a thousand times. Yeah. I actually specifically we got out. So so to give you an idea of how much I I loved this film. I had been up for 24 hours at this point because I was traveling across a time zone going backwards. So, like, and the movie was at 10.45, this amazing IMAX show. It gets out at, you know, 2 in the morning almost. And I and my first thought was, I wonder if there's somewhere that's, like, showing it now that we can get to before it starts so we can, like, <laughs> stay up until the sun comes up and watch this fucking movie because I did not want it to end. No, I didn't yeah. either. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. It's, It's... Uh, three hours of just you know cinematic perfection and you're just glued to the screen the entire time absolutely and and right away in the first less than 10 minutes there's a big woe moment when um my first woe moment i'm sure it was for you guys when uh k is trying to uh take down sapper and sapper says how does it feel doing this to your own kind yeah um, and i was and someone had mentioned to me on, fa- on Facebook, uh, a week or so ago, well, hey, looks like somebody broke through a wall in the trailer. Maybe that was Kay. He's probably a replicant. I was like, whatever. Um, he's not a replicant. I called that he was a replicant a year ago. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, I just, I, I had this feeling right away that there had to have been some dynamic between Deckard and Kay that's evidenced by them in the interviews that would you know, kind of play over into the actual film because they do have kind of a father-son thing going on in the interviews. Yeah. Mm. Or like an uncle-nephew kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, I caught it right away that he was a replicant. I wasn't surprised. What about you, Patrick? Yeah, I, well, so, so for me, I, I, was, I was thinking that he could, he could have been, could not have been. And then, I, and then, of course, like a few episodes ago, I had mentioned that, um, that it's, it seemed like the kind of like too obvious like on the nose uh plot development would be that mm-hmm. that k was was their child you know rachel and, and deckard mm. which i'm so i'm so i'm so glad that it was going in that direction and then it wasn't and i was like oh fuck yeah that was like so it was such a mature storytelling choice you know because everybody thinks they're like that they like get it you know like as soon as soon as they start making that connection they're like oh i bet like he's the the, the prodigal son you know and then he realizes it and he had his, his own breakdown and then, of course, like that gets all swept aside, and we get this beautiful, poetic, elliptical revelation of who the actual child was, which um, mm. I still I still feel like I'm spoiling something. But this is a spoiler episode, so we can we can get into it. But <laughs> my point being that that I kind of had thought that he might have been a replicant, 
And then I thought, well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, maybe it doesn't matter. And then one of the reviews that went up early, the Guardian review, had it like two sentences into it. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to read reviews. I'm not going to read reviews. But like the lead for this said about something about how it was like this eyeball melting hallucinatory orgasm. And I was like, okay, I have to read this review. And that was like yeah, the that second, about checks the all second the thing it said. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I knew he was going into it. But I also think that there, that there was no... Um, it's not really a spoiler, you know. Like, there's no reason that that's like a big deal. So it was fine. You know? No, I think it's a big deal. Like, I think uh, no, I think we just assume he's a human. And I, I, but there were tips of the hat to um, K's being being a replicant uh, in Blackout, uh, the anime film, the short film, which is amazing. You see Iggy, and he's driving a spinner. He looks like a a, a Blade Runner. He's got a, right. a coat very similar to um, K's. Um, and I thought, this is interesting. He seems like he's a Blade Runner. Um, so there was kind of them kind of tipping their hat a little bit to, to kind of trying to inform you without informing you that everything is yeah. not what you, not what it seems. Um, yeah. And that was a shocker for me. And it wasn't like huge shocker, just like I don't think knowing whether or not Deckard is a replicant, which still isn't answered. Um, I know. Uh, Good. Which I love. I, I love that they don't defend it. But it's even answer. more confusing now. It is. And you I know? think it should be. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, I just the, there are so many points like uh, and I, I uh, and obviously we can talk about whatever kind of impresses us, but as we discuss spoilers, and I think generally leaving twenty forty nine, I looked I look at twenty nineteen completely differently now, and I think about Rachel, and for me, Rachel, like we just mentioned in our prior episode, our spoiler free episode, that Rachel is the heart and soul for me of of uh blade runner 2019 and in 2049 she continues to be the heart and soul she's that MacGuffin. she's the she's the person everyone's talking about everyone's trying to find i mean they're trying to find the kid too but really it's also about rachel and then when you see you hear um the void comp tests and then you see they show that whole scene of her walking from the shadows i mean i'm just like my heart sank like that they reintroduced her and she's like, she's become elevated to this godlike status that she had a baby. She did the impossible. Um, and then to find out that maybe it was a setup, maybe they set her up to meet him, to, an ex to do an experiment, to see if she could have a child. Um, right. And I still can't get my, my head around it. I covered my tracks, scrambled the records. We were being hunted. By who? It's it's really smart on behalf of Hampton Fancher and Michael Green, I think. But as a further extension of that, I feel like it's really just par for the course with you know Villeneuve. He he always does those really shocking plot twists like that with his movies, and I think he's really smart for doing them. You know, like in Arrival, the uh, the ending had a similar kind of feeling to the last act of 2049 mm -hmm. with just, you know, the glimpses into what could have been and then what ended up happening. I mean, everybody thought, well, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but it just really seemed to me like Kay was the prodigal son of Deckard and Rachel. And then um, Freya is like, oh, you thought it was you. Oh, we all wish it was us. Yeah, and, and, and that makes it so universal, you know? Like, because cause, cause you said, like, at first, Kay is so distraught at this news, 
at, at, at least at what he is reading the news to be like, like the fact that this memory was real, like he he's feeling like his world is collapsing. And then he, and then it's like, he somehow it becomes a good thing for him. Like, like he starts viewing himself as some sort of not like necessarily messianic, but like some sort of like really, um, lucky figure that, that he's this miraculous child, like a sapper said, it was even a miracle, you know? And then that's yeah. taken from him again. And it's almost like a small death, you know, when he realizes that it was the daughter mm-hmm. and that, that like, not only, not only was it not, not only was he not that child, but everybody else wishes that they had been as well. And it, it turns out that he is just like everybody else. Like he is just this sort of misfit adrift in a desolate world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, I mean, God, like Kate's character is just so fascinating to me. I just love him. I love the way that he is confronted with prejudice in such an overt and, mm-hmm. um, terrifying way, which I'm sure we'll have whole episodes about in the future. Like his day-to-day existence is, I mean, like the, 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 the thickness of the steel on the door to his apartment is like, you know, bank it. Yeah, it's like a bank fault because it has to be because he everybody hates him because of as we know what happened with the blackout and everything like just because he happens to have been born a certain or you know not born created a certain type of being um he's subject to so much um prejudice and and dissension so that's like its whole own thing too but what he does with that as a character is so cool like I think just from an acting perspective to give somebody this directive where like you you have to be so in control of your emotions in, in varying situations that you come across as being a replicant, you have to come across as being like somewhat synthetic. So like you, like you have to be able to always pass that void comp test, you know, kind of a thing. Like you have to mm-hmm. never be able to let go of your control because otherwise you will be terminated. You'll be retired. Like to, to give somebody a character that has to stay within that narrow of a margin of emotion and to still have that character have such an epic sweep. I mean, he only has one real outburst, you know, um, and other than that, the whole time he like kind of just bounces between very slightly agitated and very slightly depressed, very slightly agitated, very slightly depressed. But within that really narrow canyon, he gets this incredible variety out of it. And his character comes across as two things simultaneously, which which I happen to think that Fassbender does really well in the Alien prequels. Um, he comes across as both synthetic and human simultaneously, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, a- what a what a challenge that is, you know. It's a very interesting trait um, because there's a lot of times when it seems like he really was programmed to be more human, like his interactions with Joy. And then some of the times, like when he's just talking with Deckard, like he's really cold, like, you know, cold as fish, as Deckard would say, depending mm. on which cut you're watching. <laughs> but yeah, uh, his performance and I, I can't help but, you know, there's a scene where he's walking after the first scene with Sapper and he's walking in and he has his head tilted and his eyes are looking down and he's kind of walking towards this one human officer and he goes something, something skin job. Fucking skin job. And, and you could see Kay kind of acquiescing and just moving his head away. Like, okay, I can't make eye contact with him. Just living with it and dealing with it. And then, Um, you know, when he goes home, that crazy old lady saying stuff in a different language about him being a skin job about what she's going to do. And then he's in the, uh, the autopsy lab and there's skin job joke, not jokes, but just comments. And, um, no one's saying anything. This guy goes, well, sorry. But then he makes another joke or not joke, but another kind of derogatory comment, but no one really calls him out for it. Um, and it, I, 
I, you know, it's fascinating. The parallels to the life that we live and what's going on in 2049 are more than coincidental. Um, it's, it's absolutely, it's, uh, but I, and that one scene too, where he finds out that, you know, Rachel didn't have a son. He had a daughter. She had a daughter. And then she's like, Oh, she thought you thought it was you. And he's sitting down and you see his head and you just see a silhouette of his profile and his heart is breaking um, because he had found purpose and that purpose was then taken from him. Um, right. It just, it broke my heart, broke my heart again when I saw it today. Like so much of, he's just, he wants to be, he wants to feel, and, and the, there's a conversation he had with, with love. Um, and then she goes on love. Um, and he goes, Oh, he, he, he named you. You, you must, must be, you must be special. Yeah. You must be special. Right. And then they're talking about the void comp tests, him and love. And they're saying, don't you love those personal questions? It's almost like you're desired. Um, right. And then she asks him one and yeah. he turns away. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, which is amazing. That banter between them, these two people who are deemed as unfit for society as less than other people, the, the connection they're having, but they're also scared to, make too much of a connection. They're scared to identify themselves too much to show too much right. personality. I mean, I, Oh, like just talking oh, about it now, so it's, it, it, it takes my breath away. Um, and, it, and also again, just the, the, um, the reflection in, in the society that we live in, um, and that we live with so much of that. Um, that's part of it, why it, it resonates so deeply. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. This breaks the world. We have to go. I'm coming with you. Where is he? You know, I, I have two two quick thoughts I want to I want to do based on what you were just saying. One is that when he's walking through the hallway of the LAPD headquarters and um, getting all of that um, derogatory language thrown at him and stuff, he, his performance there really reminded me a lot of Ashton Sanders' performance as a teenage Chiron in Moonlight. Like, at which which I, I think Moonlight I just think is one of the great films of our time as well. And I think specifically that um, that character's performance in that movie, it was like he was so aware of being an outsider and so aware of the way everybody was looking at him that he had to compress himself inward so tightly to sort of survive. And I just, I, I really got that. And I think that's part of why Moonlight works so well. And I think it's part of why 2049 works so well is you get that sense of like a society that if you make one wrong move, if you don't baseline properly, if you don't follow orders, if you show any kind of aggression when you're being called a skin job, that like that's it. That then you're done. You know, like like just like you know in Moonlight, like if he says one wrong thing, he's gonna get the shit beat out of him. You know, so like the way yeah. that he kind of compresses himself inwards and he just doesn't want anybody to look at him. He just kind of looks to the ground and he keeps moving. I thought it was really powerful. The second point that I wanted to bring up, Jamie, based on what you were saying, was that um, that whole interaction between Love and Officer K in the archives room, like if that were done on just like a soundstage somewhere 
and it looked like any other movie set or, you know, if it had just been this like generic set piece, like that still would have been a brilliant scene, mm-hmm. you know, like that from a writing standpoint, from a character standpoint, it is, it is just a brilliant, like that would be a scene that we would be talking about, but you zoom out and you look at the fucking architecture in this place. I'm sorry. I'm swearing so much in this episode, but I'm just like so excited about it. You <laughs> We're look all at the architecture here. of this room and it's like, and it's like, I mean, it's, it's like transcendently beautiful. Mm-hmm. Just from a, like the geometries and the way the light plays off things, the reflections of the water ripples on the wall, this this yellow hue that is so in contrast to the gray outside, like this just the 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 the, the chiaroscuro of the shadows and the light, the interplay of angles, like the the fact that um, I mean I I love how like the 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 Wallace headquarters was built right behind the the Tyrell building, like it's it's as and it's like this giant you know phallic like fu gesture to the Tyrell pyramid that's right in front of it. And, you know, how in, in 2019, we look at the Tyrell building as this thing of such monumental proportions that it's almost unfathomably large, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the Wallace building makes it look like it's like a, you know, a doorstop, you know? Yeah. Um, and it just shows how much power, I mean, because Wallace, of course, saved the world. Like, that's a big deal, you know? Yeah. And if, if you're able to save a species almost single-handedly, then, um, you know, you get a lot of power directed at you. And, and, and the fact that he had the resources available to build this thing that was like a continent of a building, basically, filled with the most incredible architecture. I mean, the, the set design is just, is just absurdly beautiful in this film. And then at the heart of all that, he, he, he has this ascetic existence in the center of a reflecting pool surrounded by these echolocating droid gadget things that like measure proportions for him. But he's like alone. He's like hermetically sealed at the top of this fortress. Um, and it's just, oh man, it's just, I mean, on every layer, that scene is just incredible, yeah, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, he's not in it much, uh, Jared Leto's character. Um, but when he's in it, I mean, he is, I mean, he just, he resounds in the heavens to use his oh, magnetic. terminology. I mean, he is his line delivery. He's just, he, there is something biblical about him. And, uh, there's a line that he, that he, uh, uses when he's looking at the the new model the angel and he goes we will storm eden um we will Mm. retake her um which i thought was beautiful i mean the the dialogue in this film is is just it's shakespearean it's beautiful it's it's so well written i mean there's so many moments and you know to kind of skip ahead to another scene um when k is at they're in vegas and they're in that building and he's trying to ask him questions and, and he's like, what is her name? And the difficulty that Deckard has in saying Rachel's name, um, Mm. uttering her name is heartbreaking. Um, and this is 30, 25 years after her death. Um, and he's been alone for that long, probably. Um, and he cannot bear to say her name almost. Um, it was that emotion, the emotion in his face, the, the line delivery. I mean, this film, this film is just pure emotion. That's what it is for yeah. me. Like I, I couldn't, um, I, I think about those characters, like even as cold as a uh, love was, she wasn't at the same time. You saw her. Oh, not at all. Tears streaming down her face because she wanted to be more than what she was supposed to be, but she had a job and she had a role and she had to play it. Oh. But what's so cool with the tears to me is that they were so atypical. Like when they came out, like they came out at such strange moments. Yep. And I feel like it reminded me a little bit of Roy, how, how like his react, he, he obviously was like feeling or at least manifesting very strong emotions, but they were almost always at kind of weird moments, you know, 
like like he like he went from the kind of like extreme sorrow when Pris dies to like laughing, mm-hmm. and um and it's just all of these these things where he or like you know when they're um confront when he and and Leon are confronting the eyeball um engineer and and they're like they're like so convivial and nice to him but it's like so menacing at the same time and it's just this, this juxtaposition of strangeness because it's almost like they're I don't want to say like autistic but it's almost like because they're not um organically human like they're they're there's something different about the way that they process emotion well, you know there's something, there's something yeah something childlike about it yeah and i feel like um like to me let that's what's going on with love like she is very full of emotion but it but it manifests atypically and um and you, you really get to see that i think a lot of that childlike demeanor you guys are touching upon it was kind of referenced with um the original film when uh, I think it was either Captain Bryant or Terrell who was talking about the four-year lifespan. And, uh, oh, it was Terrell. He said uh, he was talking about how replicants have a four-year lifespan because if they lived any longer, they would start to have genuine emotions. Right. And further from that, the experiences that we take for granted over an entire lifetime, they have to live within four years. Right, exactly, yeah. So yeah, it's like you're exactly. taking a four-year-old and giving them an adult's body and an adult's mentality and throwing them out into the world. Yeah, exactly. So that's a very that's a very good point. So I'm interested. Uh, what what are some big moments in the film for you guys? What were you, what were moments? And I'm not talking aesthetic. I mean, it's all beautiful. It's overwhelming. I mean, it even so. yes. <laughs> um, but what moments were you, or a moment for you, were you were you like, oh my god, I didn't expect this. Um, for me, I think the most important scene in the film was when K slash Joe, whichever you want to call him. I like Joe. Whenever Joe goes to the furnace at the the, the scrapyard and he goes to find the horse and he finds it and his whole world just gets turned upside down and just, I, I saw it at RPX, which is like IMAX. So. The, the seats were like <laughs> during that whole scene and, and my heart they were was farting. Racing. Yes, they were. <laughs> the uh, seats were farting in anticipation. Yes. But it was just like, ah, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> and then, and then you just start, you see him start tearing up and like, he's shaking. Like he just yeah. cannot process what he just, what he just saw the horse with the date. And it, it was actually real. It was it was crazy to me. That was the most important scene to me that stuck out. Yeah, and you could tell that Villeneuve knew that when he was editing it. I mean, because it goes on like just so incredibly long that 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 very gradual zoom in, that tightening shot onto the onto the furnace. Like, and it's not like I mean, every single person in that theater, while the seats were farting, knew what was going to happen. Like, there's no question that the horse is there. You know, like like this is yeah. it's so so obviously shot that way. And it goes on. It's like a almost like a forty-five second zoom, I think, into that. Like I'll time it that, out. Next that time. whole scene is like fifteen minutes long. It feels it's like very and it's long. Dead yeah. silent the whole mm-hmm. time. Dead silent. It's full of this. This incre- it's fraught with so much tension. And that it's like if it's just it's just exploding with inevitability. And we've said this on other shows before. I feel like Villeneuve is like the absolute master. I say even more so than Kubrick, at um, maintaining a sense of sustained. Um, uh, doom, 
you know, yes. of, of, of like this, the sense of just, it's like, it's almost like you're caught in a black hole and something terrible is coming at you and you can't escape from it because you're, there's so much gravity that you're being distended and brought down into it. And that moment, it's like, it, it wasn't about the fact that we knew what that, what that twist quote unquote was going to be. We knew what it was going to be, but it, it was so important that time itself dilated. Like it was so momentous that time stopped and we were in his shoes and we were realizing the implications of it. And that was exploding the the reality of like this entire world order that they had been, um, you know, forced to live in post blackout, you know, like, yeah, like I thought that was amazing too, dude. Seriously. Jamie, what about you? What, what was your, what was your moment? Oh, um, the whole thing. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's I, I, I have to yeah. say when Deckard is at, uh, the Wallace corporation and he's sitting in that chair and, um, uh, Neander is grilling him and he says, you know, it's not all bad. We do have something good. And then out steps Rachel, um, in the same costume we're introduced. Um, but before then we see, uh, him talking to him about Rachel and then, you know, there's a cut and they use, of course, the, 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 um, the scene from the original, and you see this pristine creature um, walking from the shadows. And uh, and then it's all turned on its head to Deckard. And he's saying, well, what if this was set up? And in my head, I'm like, what the fuck? Was this set up? Was this a setup to see what would happen? Um, and that was really, I mean, there was a lot of what the fuck moments. But uh, this one really emotionally, uh, just in every way, I mean, because I love these characters deeply like Rachel lives inside me you know um Rachel is a part of who I am and to see her back to see her breathing throughout that entire film um and then to see her clone um played by Sean Young it was it was a, a scene that I I could barely breathe in um and and it, you could see that Deckard could barely breathe either he didn't know what was real he didn't and he he was saying in that moment, he's saying, and he's almost crying. He's like, I know what's real. I know what's real. But he doesn't really know what's real anymore. Um, that one sentence from Neander threw everything on its head. Um, but he doesn't, you know. So that that scene there, I mean, I again, I was just anticipating it again, watching it today. Um, and it's, I can't really describe how I feel when I see it. Um, 2049 takes my emotions to a place that 2019 didn't right you know it, it, that when when you hear do like our owl come out over yeah. the audio system oh, oh my god I, my my heart was in my fucking throat yeah. i was like oh my god this is over overwhelming you know what i mean to, to hear that material in the context of this movie that was like so true to the spirit of the original and yet so much larger than it mm -hmm. and to hear and to hear that voice that we've been hearing since our childhood come back Echoing through these reverberant halls, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was powerful. And Deckard's I think my, face. Uh, yeah. Sorry, no, go, no, go on. I was just and while they're playing the audio, which I thought was a great decision on the half behalf of the filmmakers because they could have went video. Oh no, here's mm -hmm. a video, but no, it was just audio, which makes more narrative sense. It makes makes more logical sense that they had recorded audio. And to see right. Deckard's face as he's hearing Rachel's voice, he's breaking down. He's hearing the love of his life's voice for the first time when he first met her and he can barely handle it. And I just, I, I have not felt this much compassion towards Deckard before. Um, I didn't, I don't feel much to about Deckard uh, in the original. I feel more towards Rachel and about 
uh, Roy and Pris. And Deckard's kind of like, oh, okay, it's interesting. But by the end of this film, Deckard is... Oh, Deckard, I have his heart too by the end of it. Yeah. I could not I agree more really, with that. Um, I think what really stuck out for me in that entire scene wasn't necessarily the fact that his whole, his whole past and his whole relationship with Rachel gets turned upside down. What stuck out for me was when the clone of Rachel starts crying and she asks Deckard, well, don't you love me? And then you just see him kind of like his lips quiver, like he's about to break down. And and then he's like, oh, her, her eyes were green. Yeah. That really stuck out to me. She's running ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually one of I, I, I have literally only two complaints about the movie and one of them is there. So I, I think we should we should get to things that we don't like about it in a little bit as well. But that 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 is so powerful, seriously. Um and, and also Jamie, it's funny, like the, the fact that they chose to play an audio excerpt, I think it has enormous storytelling implications because like why were they recording that exchange in the first place, right? Like the the fact that they have that um that it survived the blackout, that it was archived, uh means that that was something that they were monitoring very closely. So it lends a lot of credence to what Wallace was, was saying. And also the way that Wallace couches that whole thing, like he says, um, like, have you thought about maybe you were programmed for this? So of course everybody watching it is all of a sudden like, Oh my God, we're going to find out the Deckard's a replicant. Like, this is like, like we're going to get that kind of revelation in this scene. And then, and then it becomes more than that. It becomes more ambiguous than that, which is, which I we're all in agreement is a good thing. Um, but it becomes like, you know, like maybe she, Rachel was sent and she was programmed uh, for this purpose. And he was kind of just like a pawn, like just like a schlub who happened to be in the, in the wrong place at the right time or something. Um, but it's still, who knows, maybe he was referring to him being programmed as a replicant to, to do that. You know, we well, he says two things yeah. programmed or born something. He, he says two separate things to think either, either you were programmed for this because you might be a replicant or you were born for this because you might be a human, whatever other term he uses. I can't remember right now. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, the point being that it's ambivalent, you know? Yeah. Like it, it, it maintains, and, and, and that just shows that they get, they get the movie. They get what 2019 was about. Mm-hmm. Like they understand that, that the beauty of that movie is how gray it is. It's how difficult to figure out it is, is how it is how nebulous the characters are is is how impressive it is that like that that my my personal favorite character in that movie is the is the antagonist of it you know like which never happens you know like the the person that i'm rooting for is the one who's murdering everybody you Mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. like and 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 the fact that they can write a movie where where the characters are that topsy-turvy and that interesting um shows that they have like tremendous amount of respect for this idea of enigma and um and i'm glad that they that they exploded that outward you know in in 2049 Mm -hmm. i think um for me, like there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's, I mean, like, like we were saying, like every, every three minutes, there's something unforgettable in this movie. So like, there's a, a lot of things that I'll forget to, to, to get to, but I think something that sticks out to me as a particularly effective moment is the climactic battle scene between love and officer mm-hmm. K and, and sort of and Deckard at, when they're, when they're um, basically beached at the Sepulveda wall, because it is a point where in any other movie, it turns to shit. Like, I feel like for example, on the on the plane ride home from England yesterday, I watched two things. I watched the the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner, which was great because I hadn't seen that in years, um, and I'd actually forgotten a lot of things that that I thought I remembered from the voiceover. So it was it was really cool seeing the original again, and then also seeing um, uh, and then I saw Deadpool, 
and and you know Deadpool is I, I love it. It's an awesome movie. I think he's Ryan Reynolds is like incredibly good in that character. It's a great film. But like to me, it falls apart at the climactic boss battle scene. You know, it's just it becomes what every other superhero movie is, which is like ultimately it it becomes like a bunch of CGI characters jumping around punching each other, and it's kind of like well whatever. And so in this movie, it 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 needed that because it needed some kind of a catharsis from a storytelling standpoint. Like it had all this all this pent up suspension uh suspension and, and tension and it was like you know it was going towards some kind of an eruption and we knew that was going to happen um and it could have it would have been so easy to make that kind of this emotionless very intense you know replicant fighting replicant battle but it's not it's like it's 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 so personal you know like they're choking each other they're drowning each other they're saying they're 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 looking in each other's eyes and saying that like i'm better than you you know saying that like that i was the one that won you know that that like like look me in the eyes and you tell me that that you're as special as i am you know mm-hmm. fighting for their identities not only for their physical prowess not only for deckard you know and, and then you you consider the fact that k was ostensibly sent there to kill Deckard, right, by this, like, um, incipient, um, like, revolutionary force of replicants. Like, so, so, so again, there's that gray area coming in. We're thinking that he's going there to kill Deckard, um, not believing that he will because it, it would have been such a, it would have been so antithetical to his character development, but thinking, like, that's what he's going to do, you know. And then it it doesn't, it, it's not that at all. It's something much more personal and much more intimate and much more beautiful. And, um, and it's also like it, it the fact that they end up running into the wall that was erected to protect Los Angeles from rising seawater, like that just had this whole other metaf- metaphorical mm-hmm. um, angle to it. The fact that like you're able to just revel in how amazing the new spinners look, these Peugeot spinners that oh, they developed, yeah. like and like mm. how there's like and, and you know what what else is so cool <laughs> about this is that like in in 2019 like you're aware that there was more than one model of spinner being flown around, but like you don't really get to appreciate it. And this one like you really see like there's different. You yeah. know, like the Wallace Corporation had their own, which are like really sleek and cool looking. The LAPD has their own kind of like, like, you know, badass, chunky one. And then there's this like very nice kind of like minivan one that Deckard is is trapped in. That is like also really cool. So from the another, you know, from a prop, a physical prop design standpoint, that was also really interesting. And you but, see like, the original so spinner. Much... Yeah, right. Yeah. Before yeah, it but it's there. Destroyed. Yeah. 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 That was cool. Um, I, I like that nod to the original. Yeah, that was a cool little Easter egg. But I, I just think that like that 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 fight scene to me is an example of something that that they could have gotten away with making it much more generic, and it would have been fine. But but it wasn't. It was it was well executed as an action set piece that had a lot of emotion and storytelling coming out of it. You know, they could have done it like the fight scene between Walter and David in Covenant, but instead they went between the the last scene in Sicario, when I, I forget his name right now. Um, the the oh, shit. He sits down at the table. Yeah, and he he's like, "You need to sign this contract, or you're gonna fucking die." Basically, right, right. And she can't she can't stomach doing it, and she's about to kill him. And then he takes her gun, and you know the rest of the scene just unfolds, you know, in like halftime like that. Yeah, yeah. I think Gillick was his name, Alejandro Gillick, Benicio del Toro's character. Yes, his yeah, character. I think, yeah, Gillick, which I, I think is another great. Denny Villeneuve name. I love that. Here's an interesting thing that I think we can talk about, and uh, we can probably wrap this episode up just because it's, and we're going to go on. Don't worry, people. We're going to be talking about this movie for quite some time. There's so much to unpack. We're just kind of unpacking some more initial spoiler ridden impressions of the film. But one thing I saw, and this is taking a step back. I saw this, I didn't even read it actually, but I saw this 
uh, and we're going to see this probably elsewhere. I saw this headline for this article that says, 2049 treats white women in a very stereotypical way, the way that white women have always been treated. And right away I was like, they don't know what they're talking about. And as someone who considers myself a feminist, um, and I, I, see, I was thinking about the film, thinking about how these women, you know, they were all, you know, uh, Joy is not real. She's a... Um, you know, what do you call it? She's a virtual reality hologram. Virtual reality yeah. hologram. Um, and I want one. <laughs> and Don't so tell she, Demi. So she's, uh, <laughs> she's made to be subservient. That's what she is. That's her programming. And then you have um, the, I can't remember her name either, but the replicant who's a prostitute or she's posing as a prostitute. Well, yeah. Yes, we have her. And so all these women in sort of subservient roles and even, Love, who is far more, uh, she, Love is not any of the, you know, she's far more different, you know, she has a different role, but she's in a subservient role herself. Um, and that's kind of how they're all painted, but I, I felt like, well, that's what they are. They're all replicants. They're made to serve. That's what these people yeah. are. That's the point. They are in these roles because that's what they were created for, unfortunately. And part of the, part of the, um, the story is they they want to revolt from this. They they want to be their own you know their own people. Uh, and with the the revelation that they can now give birth, they realize they have the strength to form their own communities and have their own children and not just be made by humans. Um, so yeah. I I don't want to get too far into it, but it was something that I saw that I wanted to kind of confront right away as someone who's very very I I I'm. I, my fingers on the pulse in terms of how c kind of straight white men have uh, framed women throughout history, certainly in art and in film. Um, the women in uh, 2049 are, are in those roles for a reason. And uh, part of the, the story is to kind of talk about that and to, to kind of move through that and understand why they're in that role. And then you have Robin Wright's character, um, who isn't any of those things, who's someone who's in control, uh, someone who calls the shots. And then you have a reversal of that too, where um, Kay is also very subservient. Um, that's his role. He's not, you know, you know, getting paid, to, you know, he's not there to have sex with people, but he's there to do the bidding of this woman in charge. So there's a lot of that going on in 2049, but it's just been stuck in my head. Um, and as we continue to unpack this film, we're going to probably talk about a lot of different ways of thinking or the ways of people are approaching this film who are more critical. Not to say that the film is beyond criticism. I mean, I, we were talking earlier about things that maybe you, you have criticisms of or things that you didn't like or things that didn't go well. And there's not very many at all for me in 24 years. I think it's somewhat flawless. However, the scene after um, they're in Vegas and uh, Love and her crew come and take... Deckard away, and then uh, Kay is left there with the dog, and then all of a sudden you see flashlights, and there's that other character, the replicant girl, the prostitute that he had slept with. She's there with all these other people, all these other replicants, and all of a sudden he's by a campfire, and then all of a sudden they're back in Los Angeles. I was like, how'd that happen? How you know? Okay, they're tracking him. Well, he had a tracker. Yeah, right. I know they had a tracker, but it just seems so like where did they? So they're flying to all these places and they're not being ta like flagged by the LAPD. Like, what are you doing over there in Los Angeles? Um, it just seemed a little bit convenient for me. I didn't really make enough sense. Like, I just, I was like, okay, so they found him and they're bringing him back. 
Um, I just didn't know. It just, I was, it was a little bit lost to me why they thought he was so important. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's perfectly valid. I, I think uh, another, another criticism that I have that is kind of um, around that same point in the film is that I feel like this insurgency group is, uh, is a little bit of like a deus ex machina. Like it's, mm. a, it's a little bit kind of like kind of drops out of nowhere and makes some plot details make a little more sense and, and sets up basically just kind of sets up an excuse for him to confront love on the Sepulveda wall. So it's kind of like, it's a little bit of like, uh, I mean, there's no development with that group. You know, you, you don't, you don't really get any sense of like a greater arc to it. That being said, I mean, this, it's almost a three hour long movie. Like there's, there's going to be, they, if they had put all this extra exposition about it, you know, seven eighths of the way into the movie when it finally shows up, it would have been ridiculous. It would have bloated it so much, you know. So like, I, I totally understand why, and and I, and I don't think it's necessarily a fault of the of the movie that it doesn't flesh that out more. But yeah, but that's something that kind of kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit too. Um, my other my, my my two kind of complaints were uh, that I thought that, um, like I I feel like the CGI that they used for Sean Young was was a little ridiculous, and and it kind of reminded me of um, in Rogue One. I I feel like for whatever reason they nailed Peter Cushing in that. Like he looks complete completely real. Yeah. Um, and and I say that as like a, like a really huge fan of his. Like he's like one of my one of my favorite parts of any of the, the entire Star Wars franchise. Like I have like a collection of like Peter Cushing memorabilia, and and I, I was very happy with his portrayal. But when Leia turns around, it looks like. To me, it looks like fucking, I don't know, like DreamWorks animation. It looks so bad. She um, looks like Amy Winehouse in Rogue One. <laughs> yeah. And in this one, it's just, it, it's the same thing. I was like, I was like, why? Like, because it's, 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 there's very clear retouching going on. I think part of that's because I saw it, you know, up close on an IMAX theater screen and I could tell where the CG was on it. But still, like, why, why do that, you know? Yeah. Like, like you, you, especially because Sean Young was there. Like, we know she was in Budapest for three days, you know? Like she was, and but but also they also used another actress named Lauren Pita um, to for some back shots of her, you know, and and they used all of this um, archival footage and CGI to to sort of ease the the line of delineation between where Sean Young began and Rachel ended. And um, I don't know, like like I I think it would have been more powerful to have a naturally aged um, Rachel because you know, like I mean, Deckard has gotten up there. It, and I, you know, like, and it would have been a sign of like what could have been if she had survived the childbirth. Like, they could have grown old together. You know, it could have been really beautiful. Like, instead of giving this clone of her looking like his granddaughter, you know, like why not? Um, and also, not not only looking like his granddaughter, but looking like his granddaughter played by a robot. You know, <laughs> like I thought it looked really weird. Like it rubbed up against the uncanny, uncanny valley in a way that I thought was kind of gratuitous. So that was something that I I found was like a little bit problematic. And the only other complaint that I had, and I've spoken with Jamie about this, is that. I thought that, and every conceivable aspect of this film was a ten out of ten easily. Like, and 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 I don't think that twenty nineteen was like that. I think twenty nineteen had a couple of like pretty big flaws in it, but I think overall the movie is so transcendently good that you 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 overlook those things. You know, you can suspend your disbeliefs for the little plot holes. Right. It's like it's like okay, you know, I'm okay with that. But this one, like every, there was no issue of that. Because it was so f- incredibly good that like I was never having to like forgive anything. The only thing that I thought was not transcendently better than the original was the music score, which I think was awesome and I really loved it and I think it was really effective. But I don't think it was as transcendently good as Vangelis's score was. I'm not saying that it needed to be, but I'm saying that in a film where everything else knocks it out of the ballpark so much, it would have been nice to have something that would have further challenged me as a viewer um, and expanded my horizons in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And, um, 
but that's not to take anything away because as I said to Jamie earlier, like uh, to me, like the score is still a solid B plus a minus effort. And I say that as a professional composer, like as somebody listening for this stuff, like I think it was great, you know, but I, I, I do think that um, it was not transcendently good. And it's a shame because everything else in this movie was. Yeah, I honestly, I feel like the score as great as it was, you know, you can hear the CS 80 in that score the whole time. Yeah. Like when those synth stabs just come in, um, as good as it was, I, I was really looking forward to hearing Johan Johansson's take on the original and what he would what he would bring to the table in terms of new uh, auditory storytelling. I just hope it doesn't damage the relationship that he has with Denny. I know. Yeah, hopefully know. that was more of a studio decision than it was a Denny decision. Um, well, actually, I think we just found out today that it was really a Denny decision. Interesting. Well, the, yeah. I, I, the odd thing about the score is a lot of it reminds me of Johan Johansson's work. Um, yes, I noticed that too. Very atmospheric, very... Uh, I just feel like this score is far more... I mean, Vangelis' score is atmospheric, but it's a character. It's living, breathing, and it's a lot of melody. There's not as much melody in the score as there is in the original. Um, and that is just what it is. Um, and uh, I, I, it's hard to kind of or critique if it should be better because for me it just works so beautifully. I, I, and I don't know, and I, we were talk, I was talking about this with Patrick earlier, I don't know if the music needed to be the same character in this film that it was in the original. And it needed to work the same way because this film... Uh, kind of makes up for the original, which I think is amazing, in spades. Uh, whereas the the you know with the first film, the music really brings the film to life. And for me, in twenty forty nine, um, it just the film the music just kind of rounds out the the film. Like the music is kind of there to to heighten this incredible story that doesn't need much more than what we're seeing. Mm. Yeah. And, and I know this is something that we'll get much more into in future episodes, but, but just, just to reiterate, I am not taking anything away from this movie. Like the, that the CG weirdness and the score not being transcendent, like th those are such minor quibbles in the face of what to me is one of the greatest films I've ever seen in my entire life. One of the greatest films I've ever seen with my own personal eyes. I, th I think it is just incredible. And I can't wait to see it again. Me, me too. I, I'm with you. And uh, to one one point that you made, and we can probably wrap this up. Uh, I really want to know if they actually CG'd um, Sean Young. I have a feeling they didn't. Now, I could be completely wrong. Uh, when she was walking out into the light, similar to what she did in the original, she looked dead on. She looked like, oh my God, that's her. And then as she got closer to her, she looked a little odd. It did look a little strange. But I'm wondering if that's just because she's aged and not because it's CG. And I'm I would bet money as much as Denis has gone on record saying, I do not like this. I do not li I like practical effects. If it was all practical, and that was just her aged, and they made her look as young as they possibly could. Well, there's a lot you can do with stage makeup. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, Harrison Ford, he's. In the last 20 years, he has never looked older than 50 in any movie he's been in. Um, that's just my opinion. But I kind of had the feeling that she was just in makeup as well. Because there's two credits for Rachel's character. And that's the performance artist that Patrick mentioned. And then 
there's Sean Young, who's given the credit as performing Rachel. There's a performance artist credited as Rachel? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Uh, So it implies uh, that they did something like with Rogue One. Interesting. with, With the characters. So it might be that she was, she played like Rachel, but not in the close ups or vice versa. Interesting. Now, do you guys know the name of the performance artist? Do you guys remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, it, well, I actually just uh, had it written down. It's um, Lauren Peta. Lauren, Lauren yeah, it's L O R E N P E T A. And I've actually, just as you were speaking, I decided to look it up, and there has been no definitive word from the producers how they actually did it. So there's been a ton of speculation online. Um, most most of it leaning towards CG being a part of it. Um, but well, when the news broke, what is it, like a week or two ago that Sean Young was confirmed to be in the film, uh, there was a lot of speculation going around that it would be pure CG as like an enhancement because a lot of people feel that she has not aged well, which I think, you know, she looks great for her age. But, you know... From a studio standpoint, they may have thought, oh, well, we might need to, you know, make her look more like the younger Rachel from a storytelling and studio standpoint. But that's... Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the idea was to, like, basically put him in a situation where they were recreating their original meet cute, you know, like, so it would be like he was just seeing her transported back to the way that he remembered her or something. But yeah, but Sean mm-hmm. Young is 57. You know, she looks amazing. I, I, like, I think that they probably could have done it just with just with makeup. But I also, I, I, I don't quite understand why they why they needed to. But again, I'm, I'm just conf- it's just so weird to me that Tarkin, I mean, who has such a kind of bizarre look to him, like he looks totally normal in Rogue One, and and Leia looks like so so bizarre. And, and I feel like in this one, it's the same thing. It's this uncanny valley thing where the face isn't like quite quite right. Yeah, and it just, to me, was very weird. Like I, I even felt like I could see some like dithering going on on the edges of her face. Like it looked almost like the effect hadn't been totally um, finished. Was, there was something strange, but it could have been a projection issue at the theater or something. But I, I felt like that moment for me was was a little distracting. I mean, but it, it's to, to be fair. Like we're sitting here, you know, spending fifteen minutes on this like maybe forty five total frames of this film. I, I mean, like it it is like. I, I mean, the film is so much more than this one particular, you know, photo oh, yeah. photographic moment. I mean, I don't think we should get too hung up on it. And and I, 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 as the token person complaining about it, am just letting you know that like it does not ruin anything for me at all. I mean, yeah. no, you not know, at all. Yeah, it, it's it's so it's so it's so forgivable in the face of the great thing that we got. I mean, you know, and I'm I'm excited. I hope you know we have room and further episodes to to look into how they did it, and you know maybe maybe talk to some effects producers or something and maybe help to like clarify that a little bit for the fan community, because I think it's something people are, are wondering about now having seen the movie. Totally. And my question would be then why, if Rachel, if Sean Young is in Budapest, which she was, uh, they flew her over there. Why would they need a performance artist? Why not just put those dots on her face and do it on her? Why would you yeah. need someone different unless they needed to do pickups, which might be that, the case. I, I think that's, I think it was probably pickups and, and they, and they had her, um, do the original dialogue and then maybe do ADR afterwards mm-hmm. and, and kind of complete it. But, um, cause there's a picture of Sean Young that we shared. She's with Joanna Cassidy on our, uh, uh, shoulder of Orion page. I mean, Sean, she looks flawless. She looks, there's not a yeah. wrinkle on her face. I mean, maybe her, there's a little bit of sagging at any rate. Like you said, there, this isn't a bone of contention, whatever it didn't, 
even bother me when I actually Bill Robbie brought this up to me. He's like, yeah, that was my, it's like, you know, the, there's a little bit of problem there. And I was like, really? I didn't even notice. But at the same mm. time, I'll say when the final cut for Blade Runner came out, I know they redid some of the, uh, uh, the, the scene with Zora running through the glass. I never yeah. noticed that before. I never noticed how bad it looked before. I just didn't <laughs> because I, I was so immersed in the emotion of the scene um, until know. finally someone pointed out. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can see it. But it never took me out of the film. Um, me neither. And, and that's one of those. That's actually a moment I was thinking about when I said that um, because 2019 is just so great, you overlook some kind of inconsistencies and things. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I have to say, like, like I said, I, I mean, I have been watching exclusively the final cut basically since 2007 because I just love it. Um, mm. And, and I, I had forgotten about some of the things in the original and the earlier drafts of it or the earlier script versions of it that I had had issues with. And so watching on the airplane, the, the original cut and this like terrible, you know, headrest monitor thing, um, you know, it was like three inches in front of my face because the person in front of me was like reclined all the way. I was like really had a really good view of it. And I was waiting for that Zora scene to happen because I knew it had, it had been changed and it didn't bother me. I was like, it still works. It's still beautifully done. You know, I mean. Totally. And I, and even when I noticed, I mean, when I was watching the film the first time, I, I, when they got to real close up, I, I noticed her features, she just looked a little bit different, but then I thought she's 57. Of course she looks different. You know, right. of course she's the not. The voice gonna, seemed off to me. Too. Yeah. The voice was different too, but she's 57. The voice is going to be a little bit different. She'll probably have changed her pitch just slightly as women age. Sometimes their voices drop as men age, their voices drop or it becomes weaker. Just things happen. So that's kind of how it just made sense to me. Um, and it just wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't take me out of the, the picture at all. Um, but I can right. see how for some people like, yeah, I noticed something, but in, in to the point about Leia. Yes. When I saw Leia, it was like, okay, that guess that looks like Leia, but not enough like her, you know? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. yeah. Weird. But yeah, Tarkin was dead on. It was weird. I know. It's so, it's so weird. He looks totally like he's just alive. I don't know how that... You may fire when ready. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I would say that that, that uh, wraps up our uh, spoiler-filled reaction episode to Blade Runner 2049. Again, uh, these are our first reactions, our first thoughts. As the weeks and months pass by, we're going to be far more structured. We're going to break things down, probably either moment by moment or scene by scene. We're going to break the soundtrack down. We're going to talk about each character and what they meant and what they mean to us. So thank you so much, Peter, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, it's been Thanks a while. Thanks for having me, guys. I knew, I knew we were, I told Peter a few months back, I was like, when we have our Blade Runner reaction episode, you're on it. Um, so thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Patrick. I know it's you're exhausted. Yeah, I don't know. Of course. And I, I got to say, in preparation for all these episodes that we've got, you know, coming up on this, um, please engage with us. Like you guys listening to this, seriously, um, you can write us, you know, on uh, the Shoulder of Orion Facebook page. Uh, you can uh, reach out to us on Building Better Worlds, which is our social media platform, which you totally got to check out on Facebook. Or uh, you can call us, as always, at 213-787-7894. That's 213-787-7894, which is also on our website and everything. And you can find it from there. And uh, let us know what you think. Let us know your theories. Let us know your complaints, what you love about it, what you think of the potential CG <laughs> in the racial scene. Um, and we'll uh, we'll try to fit it into an episode and, and try to address it and uh, even hopefully score interviews with people who might be able to shed some light on it. So, again, you know, reach out to us via any of the social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we're everywhere. And uh, make sure you head over to perfectorganism.com where we got a, a lot more content on all of this um, for you. And we're also archiving all the episodes, et cetera. 
And uh, yeah, we look forward to engaging with you guys on this. And uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. It was awesome. and, and, and Peter, it's great talking to you, man. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It was really great talking with you guys, too. May I make yeah. a shameless plug? Sure. Um, as some of you guys may know, I was formerly associated with Perfect Organism uh, to everybody listening. Um, I started that with Jamie. And after my tenure with the podcast ended, I created my own aesthetic page on Facebook centered around the Blade Runner universe and old cars and just cool stuff I find online. Um, and that is Rep Detect 9732. So um, I'll send you guys a link if you guys want to post it on your pages and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'll promote you guys too. That sounds great. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. I can't wait to check it out. All right, guys. I'll talk to you later. Thanks all so right. much.